Chapter One of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova, translated by Arthur Machen. Episode One, Childhood, Chapter Three. Bettina is supposed to go mad. Father Mancia, the smallpox, I leave Padua. Bettina must have been in despair, not knowing into whose hands her letter had fallen, to return it to her, and thus to allay her anxiety. Was therefore a great proof of friendship. But my generosity, at the same time that it freed her from a keen sorrow, must have cost her another. Quite as dreadful, for she knew that I was master of her secret. Cordiani's letter was perfectly explicit. It gave the strongest evidence that she was in the habit of receiving him every night, and therefore the story she had prepared to deceive me was useless. I felt it was so, and, being disposed to calm her anxiety as far as I could, I went to her bedside in the morning, and placed in her hands Cordiani's note, and my answer to her letter. The girl's spirit and talent had won my esteem. I could no longer despise her. I saw in her only a poor creature seduced by her natural temperament. She loved man, and was to be pitied only on account of the consequences. Believing that the view I took of the situation was a right one, I had resigned myself like a reasonable being, and not like a disappointed lover. The shame was for her, and not for me. I had only one wish, namely, to find out whether the two brothers, Feltrini, Cordiani's companions, had likewise shared Bettina's favours. Bettina put on throughout the day a cheerful and happy look. In the evening she dressed herself for the ball, but suddenly an attack of sickness, whether feigned or real I did not know, compelled her to go to bed, and frightened everybody in the house. As for myself, knowing the whole affair, I was prepared for new scenes, and, indeed, for sad ones, for I felt that I had obtained over her a power repugnant to her vanity and self-love. I must, however, confess that, in spite of the excellent school in which I found myself before I had attained manhood, and which ought to have given me experience as a shield for the future, I have through the whole of my life been the dupe of women." Twelve years ago, if it had not been for my guardian angel, I would have foolishly married a young, thoughtless girl with whom I had fallen in love. Now that I am seventy-two years old, I believe myself no longer susceptible to such follies. But alas, that is the very thing which causes me to be miserable. The next day the whole family was deeply grieved, because the devil, of whom Bettina was possessed, had made himself master of her reason. Dr. Gozzi told me that there could not be the shadow of a doubt that his unfortunate sister was possessed, as, if she had only been mad, she never would have so cruelly ill-treated the Capuchin, Prospero, and he determined to place her under the care of Father Mancia. This Mancia was a celebrated Jacobin, or Dominican, exorcist, who enjoyed the reputation of never having failed to cure a girl possessed of the demon. 
Sunday had come. Bettina had made a good dinner, but she had been frantic all through the day. Towards midnight her father came home, singing Tasso as usual, and so drunk that he could not stand. He went up to Bettina's bed, and after kissing her affectionately, he said to her, "'Thou art not mad, my girl.' Her answer was that he was not drunk. "'Thou art possessed of the devil, my dear child.' "'Yes, father, and you alone can cure me.' "'Well, I am ready.' Upon this our shoemaker begins a theological discourse, expatiating upon the power of faith and upon the virtue of the paternal blessing. He throws off his cloak, takes a crucifix in one hand, places the other over the head of his daughter, and addresses the devil in such an amusing way that even his wife, always a stupid, dull, cross-grained old woman, had to laugh till the tears came down her cheek. The two performers in the comedy alone were not laughing, and this serious countenance added to the fun of the performance. I marvelled at Bettina, who was always ready to enjoy a good laugh, having sufficient control over herself to remain calm and grave. Dr. Gozzi had also given way to merriment, but begged that the farce should come to an end, for he deemed that his father's eccentricities were as many profanations against the sacredness of exorcism. At last the exorcist, doubtless tired out, went to bed, saying that he was certain that the devil would not disturb his daughter during the night. On the morrow, just as we had finished our breakfast, Father Mancia made his appearance. Dr. Gozzi, followed by the whole family, escorted him to his sister's bedside. As for me, I was entirely taken up by the farce of the monk. Here is his portrait. His figure was tall and majestic, his age about thirty. He had light hair and blue eyes. His features were close to those of Apollo, but without his pride and assuming haughtiness. His complexion, dazzling white, was pale, but that paleness seemed to have been given for the very purpose of showing off the red coral of his lips, through which could be seen, when they opened, two rows of pearls. He was neither thin nor stout, and the habitual sadness of his countenance enhanced its sweetness. His gait was slow, his air timid, an indication of the great modesty of his mind. When we entered the room Bettina was asleep, or pretended to be so, Father Mancia took a sprinkler and threw over her a few drops of holy water. She opened her eyes, looked at the monk, and closed them immediately. A little while after she opened them again, had a better look at him, laid herself on her back, let her arms droop down gently, and with her head pettily bent on one side she fell into the sweetest of slumbers. The exorcist, standing by the bed, took out his pocket ritual, and the stole which he put round his neck, then a reliquary, which he placed on the bosom of the sleeping girl, and with the air of a saint he begged all of us to fall on our knees and to pray, so that God should let him know whether the patient was possessed or only laboring under a natural disease. He kept us kneeling for half an hour, reading all the time in a low tone of voice. Bettina did not stir. 
tired, I suppose, of the performance, he desired to speak privately with Dr. Gozzi. They passed into the next room, out of which they emerged after a quarter of an hour, brought back by a loud peal of laughter from the mad girl, who, when she saw them, turned her back on them. Father Mancia smiled, dipped the sprinkler over and over in the holy water, gave us all a generous shower, and took his leave. Dr. Gozzi told us that the exorcist would come again on the morrow, and that he had promised to deliver Bettina within three hours if she were truly possessed of the demon, but that he made no promise if it should turn out to be a case of madness. The mother exclaimed that he would surely deliver her, and she poured out her thanks to God for having allowed her the grace of beholding a saint before her death. The following day, Bettina was in a fine frenzy. She began to utter the most extravagant speeches that a poet could imagine, and did not stop. When the charming exorcist came into her room, he seemed to enjoy her foolish talk for a few minutes, after which, having armed himself cap a pied, he begged us to withdraw. His order was obeyed instantly. We left the chamber, and the door remained open. But what did it matter? Who would have been bold enough to go in? During three long hours we heard nothing. The stillness was unbroken. At noon the monk called us in. Bettina was there sad and very quiet, while the exorcist packed up his things. He took his departure, saying he had very good hopes of the case, and requesting that the doctor would send him news of the patient. Bettina partook of dinner in her bed, got up for supper, and the next day behaved herself rationally. But the following circumstance strengthened my opinion that she had been neither insane nor possessed. It was two days before the purification of the Holy Virgin. Dr. Gozzi was in the habit of giving us the sacrament in his own church, but he always sent us for our confession to the church of St. Augustine, in which the Jacobins of Padua officiated. At the supper-table he told us to prepare ourselves for the next day, and his mother, addressing us, said, You ought, all of you, to confess to Father Mancia, so as to obtain absolution from that holy man. I intend to go to him myself. Cordiani and the two Feltrini agreed to the proposal. I remained silent, but as the idea was unpleasant to me, I concealed the feeling with a full determination to prevent the execution of the project. I had entire confidence in the secrecy of confessions, and I was incapable of making a false one. But knowing that I had a right to choose my confessor, I most certainly never would have been so simple as to confess to Father Mancia what had taken place between me and the girl, because he would have easily guessed that the girl could be no other but Bettina. Besides, I was satisfied that Cordiani would confess everything to the monk, and I was deeply sorry. Early the next morning, Bettina brought me a band for my neck, and gave me the following letter. Spurn me, but respect my honor and the shadow of peace to which I aspire. No one from this house must confess to Father Mancia. You alone can prevent the execution of that project, and I need not suggest the way to succeed. It will prove, 
whether you have some friendship for me. I could not express the pity I felt for the poor girl, as I read that note. In spite of that feeling, this is what I answered. I can well understand that, notwithstanding the inviolability of confession, your mother's proposal should cause you great anxiety, but I cannot see why, in order to prevent its execution, you should depend upon me rather than upon Cordiani, who has expressed his acceptance of it. All I can promise you is that I will not be one of those who may go to Father Mancia, but I have no influence over your lover. You alone can speak to him. She replied, I have never addressed a word to Cordiani since the fatal night which has sealed my misery, and I never will speak to him again, even if I could by so doing recover my lost happiness. To you alone I wish to be indebted for my life and for my honor. The girl appeared to me more wonderful than all the heroines of whom I had read in novels. It seemed to me that she was making sport of me with the most barefaced effrontery. I thought she was trying to fetter me again with her chains, and although I had no inclination for them, I made up my mind to render her the service she claimed at my hands, and which she believed I alone could compass. She felt certain of her success, but in what school had she obtained her experience of human heart? Was it in reading novels? Most likely, the reading of a certain class of novels causes the ruin of a great many young girls, but I am of opinion that from good romances they acquire graceful manners and a knowledge of society. Having made up my mind to show her every kindness in my power, I took an opportunity, as we were undressing for the night, of telling Dr. Gozzi that for conscientious motives I could not confess to Father Mancia, and yet that I did not wish to be an exception in that matter. He kindly answered that he understood my reasons, and that he would take us all to the church of St. Antoine. I kissed his hand in token of my gratitude. On the following day, everything having gone according to her wishes, I saw Bettina sit down to the table with a face beaming with satisfaction. In the afternoon, I had to go to bed in consequence of a wound in my foot, the doctor accompanied his pupils to church, and Bettina, being alone, availed herself of the opportunity, came to my room, and sat down on my bed. I had expected her visit, and I received it with pleasure, as it heralded an explanation for which I was positively longing. She began by expressing a hope that I would not be angry with her for seizing the first opportunity she had of some conversation with me. No, I answered, for you thus affords me an occasion of assuring you that, my feelings toward you being those of a friend only, you need not have any fear of my causing you any anxiety or pleasure. Therefore, Bettina, you may do whatever suits you. My love is no more. You have, at one blow, given the death-stroke to the intense passion which was blossoming in my heart. When I reached my room, after the ill-treatment I had experienced, at Cordiani's hands, I felt for you nothing but hatred. That feeling soon merged into utter contempt, but that sensation itself was in time, when my mind recovered its balance, changed for a feeling of the deepest indifference, which again has given way when I saw what power there is in your mind. I have now become your friend, 
I have conceived the greatest esteem for your cleverness. I have been the dupe of it. But no matter. That talent of yours does exist. It is wonderful, divine. I admire it, I love it, and the highest homage I can render to it is, in my estimation, to foster for the possessor of it the purest feelings of friendship. Reciprocate that friendship. Be true, sincere, and plain-dealing. Give up all nonsense, for you have already obtained from me all I can give you. The very thought of love is repugnant to me. I can bestow my love only where I feel certain of being the only one loved. You are at liberty to lay my foolish delicacy to the account of my youthful age, but I feel so, and I cannot help it. You have written to me that you never speak to Cordiani. If I am the cause of that rupture between you, I regret it, and I think that, in the interest of your honour, you would do well to make it up with him. For the future, I must be careful never to give him any grounds for umbrage or suspicion. Recollect also that, if you have tempted him by the same manoeuvres which you have employed towards me, you are doubly wrong, for it may be that, if he truly loves you, you have caused him to be miserable. All you have just said to me, answered Bettina, is grounded upon false impressions and deceptive appearances. I do not love Cordiani, and I never had any love for him, on the contrary. I have felt, and I do feel for him, a hatred which he has richly deserved. And I hope to convince you, in spite of every appearance which seems to convict me. As to the reproach of seduction, I entreat you to spare me such an accusation. On our side, consider that, if you had not yourself thrown temptation in my way, I never would have committed towards you an action of which I have deeply repented, for reasons which you do not know, but which you must learn from me. The fault I have been guilty of is a serious one, only because I did not foresee the injury it would do me in the inexperienced mind of the ingrat who dares to reproach me with it. Bettina was shedding tears. All she had said was not unlikely and rather complimentary to my vanity, but I had seen too much. Besides, I knew the extent of her cleverness and it was very natural to lend her a wish to deceive me. How could I help thinking that her visit to me was prompted only by her self-love being too deeply wounded to let me enjoy a victory so humiliating to herself? Therefore, unshaken in my preconceived opinion, I told her that I placed implicit confidence in all she had just said respecting the state of her heart previous to the playful nonsense which had been the origin of my love for her, and that I promise never in the future to allude again to my accusation of seduction. But, I continued, confess that the fire at that time burning in your bosom was only of short duration, and that the slightest breath of wind had been enough to extinguish it. Your virtue, which went astray for only one instant, and which has so suddenly recovered its mastery over your senses, deserves some praise. You, with all your deep adoring love for me, became all at once blind to my sorrow, whatever care I took to make it clear to your sight. It remains for me to learn how that virtue could be so very dear to you, at the very time that Cordiani took care to wreck it every night. Bettina eyed me with the air of triumph which perfect confidence in victory gives to a person, and said, 
you have just reached the point where I wished you to be. You shall not be made aware of things which I could not explain before, owing to your refusing the appointment which I then gave you for no other purpose than to tell you all the truth. Cordiani declared his love for me a week after he became an inmate in our house. He begged my consent to a marriage, if his father made the demand of my hand as soon as he could have completed his studies. My answer was that I did not know him sufficiently, that I could form no idea on the subject, and I requested him not to allude to it any more. He appeared to have quietly given up the matter, but soon after I found out that it was not the case. He begged me one day to come to his room now and then to dress his hair. I told him I had no time to spare, and he remarked that you were more fortunate. I laughed at this reproach, as every one here knew that I had the care of you. It was a fortnight after my refusal to Cordiani that I unfortunately spent an hour with you in that loving nonsense which has naturally given you ideas, until then unknown to your senses. That hour made me very happy. I loved you, and having given way to every natural desires, I reveled in my enjoyment without the slightest remorse of conscience. I was longing to be again with you the next morning, but after supper misfortune laid for the first time its hands upon me. Cordiani slipped in my hands this note, and this letter which I have since hidden in a hole in the wall, with the intention of showing them to you at the first opportunity. Seeing this, Bettina handed me the note and the letter. The first ran as follows. Admit me this evening in your closet, the door of which, leading to the yard, can be left ajar, or prepare yourself to make the best of it with the doctor, to whom I intend to deliver, if you should refuse my request, the letter of which I enclose a copy. End of Part 1 Of Episode 1, Chapter 3